At its very core, drug science must remain independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. It's with the support of the drug science community we're able to do this and make the podcast in the first place. If you're able to become a drug science community member and support the show, you too will be supporting the dissemination of evidence-based drug policies. Without you, none of this would be possible. For anybody interested, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. Well, hello and uh, welcome to this Drug Science Podcast. As you know, I'm David Nutt, and today I have for someone you may not have heard of, certainly the international listeners won't have heard of, almost certainly, he's called Dan Carden. And Dan, he's a member of the British Parliament. He represents the Labour Party from Liverpool, Walton, up in the northwest of England. He served as Shadow Secretary of State for International Development from 2018 to 2020. And that's not why he's on the programme today. He's on the program today because he is a very strong advocate for appropriate and uh, measured and drug laws. And he's, he made one of the most remarkably honest and moving speeches probably I've ever seen a politician make just a few months ago when he, he talked about his own problems with alcohol. And when I saw that, I thought I would love to have you on the program, Dan. So welcome to the Drug Science Podcast. Hi, David, and thank you very much for inviting me. In fact, you were on my list of people to speak to, and then you reached out to me after the speech, so I'm I'm delighted to join you and have a discussion. Well, it's really great to have you here. Um, But before we talk about perhaps this of the drug side of things, why don't you just tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? I mean, you actually, are you from Liverpool or where did you grow up? And give us a bit of colour to your background and you're, you're not very old, so your childhood. Absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm 34 years of age and I was elected to Parliament to represent Liverpool Walton when I was 30 in 2017. And it's been a tumultuous couple of years. But I am from Liverpool. I was born and raised there. My dad was a Liverpool dock worker. And in fact, my family, the Carden family, came over from Ireland to Liverpool in the 1840s. And Every single one of the male generation, the males of every generation have worked on Liverpool's docks until my brother and I. I'm very proud of my industrial heritage and grew up amongst trade unionists and and dock workers. And that's part of my story, I suppose, because that culture, I think the the culture of uh, industrial culture, but also the culture of a lot of big cities, Uh, is one that's based around alcohol and working hard and and playing hard. Uh, And I think I can certainly see how my story and my struggle with alcohol is relevant to to politics today and relevant to uh, a lot of the the social problems and social questions that we have to answer. But what did you do before? Were you always in politics, local politics, before you became an MP and what, four years ago? I went from Liverpool to the London School of Economics and I studied international relations there. Uh, And then I did work in Parliament for a bit. And then I worked uh, for five years at the Unite Trade Union, which actually was formed from the Transport and General Workers 
Union and Amicus when they merged uh, back in the, I think the early 2000s or 2008 or 2009. And Unite was the, the super union that was created. So I, I ended up going back to work for the trade union that had represented my dad and my granddad and all my ancestors for many, many years. And then from there went to Parliament. I see. So you obviously always, presumably from a very young age, had an ambition to make things better and to, to bring a bit more social justice into the world, both locally and internationally. Was that it? Uh, yeah. And well, the big event, I suppose, that influenced my politics was in 1995. My dad was a Liverpool dock worker and the dockers went into dispute with their employer, the Mersey Docks and Harbour Company. And there was a dispute that lasted for over two years where the dockers were locked out of their work and were effectively on strike. And so my dad was, after that dispute finished, my dad was left unemployed for seven years in total. But, but I grew up and at the age of eight was on picket lines and marches in the city centre. And it really was about opposing the casualization of work. That was what the dispute was about. And so as a young lad, I, I used to skive off school and go to the Transport and General Workers Union building in the city centre, uh, which is still there, one of Unite's officers. And so undoubtedly that politicised me. And the nice thing is I, I still go home and speak to the, the old dockers and they keep me up to date on what's going on in politics. Actually, a lot of, a lot of my listeners probably won't understand what you're talking about in terms of of the Dockers and the, but I, I'm old enough to remember I was brought up in Bristol and I remember the Bristol Docks, which were much, much smaller than the Liverpool Docks. People coming to work and queuing and hoping to get a job for the day. Would you want to just clarify what it was like for your parents and your grandparents, please? Well, I think that was before the late 1960s, and I think, where you really did have casual labour that meant that there were no sort, there was, there was no job uh, but you could turn up and you'd be picked out for a day's work. And of course, that led to untold misery and poverty and hunger. Uh, so by the time, I suppose, my granddad and dad were working on the docks, so in the latter part of my granddad's time, there would have been more secure employment. And that's all down to trade unions. That's down to organised labour fighting for proper pay terms and conditions. And so really, I was... You can see my path to Parliament, which is uh, very much been influenced by the history of Liverpool and industrial relations there. And it's something I'm very proud of and I, I remain connected to. But it wasn't plain sailing. I mean, obviously, at one level, you were a, a remarkable success story. You, you're going to the premier university for studying economics and politics, the London School, and, and then you're working in the, the leading union. And you're obviously, I presume, aspiring to get into Parliament at that time. Would that be fair? I, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I, I look back at it now. I know I had a, it's easy for me to say, sort of in my third year of recovery, I know I had a problematic relationship with alcohol from a very early age. But when you grow up and binge drinking is quite normalised and that, and you're a young man and you can handle your, your drink, you know, you don't feel or sense that you have an issue. Uh, I found that it was really when I got into my kind of mid-20s and professional life that 
I knew I had a problematic relationship with alcohol, even though I would never have dreamt of calling myself an alcoholic, which I'm quite happy to do nowadays. But I was high achiever, without a doubt. I was head boy of my school. I went off to the London School of Economics. I was, you know, elected to Parliament at the age of 30, in the Shelley Cabinet at the age of 32. I think it's possible to see how people who are dealing with unhappiness and unresolved issues can use alcohol or use another drug to seek to escape or to self-medicate, but also work. You can build a life around work that allows you to avoid lots of personal issues. So it kind of makes sense to me nowadays, looking back. Well, let's, let's look back. Let's look back. I mean, do you remember your first drink? I do, actually. I was probably 10 or 11 years of age, and I was in France with family and friends. And I think I, I sneaked a little bit of the, the red wine and then the port that was on the table. And I, I remember being quite tipsy and thinking, what is this? <laughs> yeah, and it probably wasn't until a few years later that I got to try it again. But I remember that being the first occasion. Well, I remember another very famous figure in Labour's past, Alistair Campbell, saying uh, he remembers vividly. He was 13, and I think it was uh, Hogmanay, and he uh, he remembers his first drink then. And, and, and he, of course, has famously written and talked about his alcoholism. Um, it's surprising how young people do start. But but in your case, it, you didn't become dependent, what, till late, your later teens, or, or was it even later than that? I started going out regularly, probably from the age of... 15, 16, and drinking at weekends and, and things. But again, it was it was probably always drinking too much, mm. but not sensing that there was a real problem then. And I don't, I never felt that there was a problem until into my twenties. When I was in my twenties, I had to, I had to start abs, abstaining from alcohol because of the effect it was having on me physically and, and feeling-wise, so I, I, I would stop for maybe a couple of weeks or a couple of months by the time I got to my late 20s. Uh, but then I would return to it, and I think the problems uh, got worse each time I returned to it. Well, that's actually a very, very typical pattern, and the cycles of using it out of control, realising you can't cope, stopping. But then when you start again, your brain's kind of ready to get out of control faster. It's a, you know, kind of reiterate the past, but in a more accelerated fashion. It's you know, not an uncommon profile for someone losing control. But you, you obviously, you had insights, but was it you having the insights? Or was it your family or your friends saying you've got to stop? Or were you just getting terrible hangovers? Or were you just not turning up for work? I mean, what were the issues that made you realize that you have, you're out of control? It was, I mean, it was a little bit of all of those things when I, when you, when you said them, I, I connected with all of them. And, but in, in particular, what made me accept that I needed to do something was my family and their intervention. And they were raising concerns. And, well, I, I spoke about this a few times. My mum wrote me a letter and that had never happened before. And, in it, she talked about how my drinking made her feel. And I think from that, that moment, it may not have been immediate, but, it would, but from that moment, 
I knew I was getting to the end of this period and that the only answer was to stop. And for that, I needed help. And so my brother took me to my first AA meeting. He, he asked me a few days into a hangover whether he could, I would let him take, take me. And I, I agreed. And it was actually a lovely meeting. In Liverpool or London? In London. Yes. And I've never actually been to an AA meeting in Liverpool. I, I, would, I, will, I will be going. When I was going, I felt the need for anonymity. And I was always looking over, looking over my shoulder, thinking, oh, I hope someone doesn't see me go in here or write about me or anything. So there were those added pressures. But actually, from the first meeting I went to, I, I knew that this was going to work for me in a way. And I've heard enough to think, yeah. Well, I want to go through some of that, Dan. There's some, you said a few really important things there. i kind of reflect on them a bit with you. Absolutely. So, I mean, I, I think the mother's letter is very, very telling. Was that the first time she'd actually engaged with you about her concerns or, or, or had she spoken in the past and you just ignored her? I, we'd spoken and I'd not done anything about it or not changed. Or I'd continued the cycle of stopping for a period but always wanting to return to it. You can say, I mean, for her, I suppose she may not have been a great letter writer, but to, to have pulled it all together in, in that fashion, I mean, it, it showed you how serious she was and, and how she wanted you to have something that you couldn't just drink away because you can always you know, forget a conversation by drinking more. But that letter would have been there. I mean, do you still have it? Yes. Yeah. She has it, actually. And it would be, I think it would still be painful to look at it because really what the message was how much I was hurting myself, but also those around me. That was the, the real message. And that's a really important message because so often the anger that families and friends have with alcoholics is that they're hurting their families or their friends. But it, it, of course, the person who's really getting most damaged is the person who's drinking too much. And presumably she had great hopes for you and, and, and still does. And the, the idea that you sort of wash away all your education and your potential through alcohol must be really bad. Well, I, I would say my parents have never pressured me to do well or to achieve. And actually, I think what really hurt them was that I could be so unhappy. And whereas I couldn't see that I was drinking because I was unhappy, I think we have as, an, as a country and probably beyond this view of alcohol or uh, drugs being taken to the purposes of enjoyment. But I think the people closest to you can see that actually these are things that are being used to medicate and to escape. Yes, I suppose when you've, I mean, was it always, was alcohol always for you escape or, or did you start off having fun with it and then it gradually became... Oh, I've, I've had lots of fun with it over the years, and I'm not anti-alcohol. I'm definitely not anti-people going out, having something which releases their inhibitions, and in some ways, and you know, not without doubt, and it allows people to have a different type of fun. So I'm not, I'm not against any of that. I think for me, and the, what I've been doing since I've taken this up as a bit of a political issue is looking at the 
vacuum when it comes to treatment, support, recovery for those that found themselves in the same position that I did. And so when you're 20s then, you say you were, you were on this interesting and, and very positive career trajectory, you know, you had your degree and you were, you know, being a rising star in the union and obviously people were seeing you as a, I presume as a future prime minister, hopefully. I, I don't think so. But... Was it the stress of the work or was it the expectation? I mean, what, what, were, the, what were the stresses you were dealing with? Actually, the, the speech made in the House of Commons talks about, I talk about my sexuality. It was a pride debate in the House of Commons. And I'd come out in my early to mid-20s which is, I think, quite late. But what I talk about in the speech and what I learned about in recovery was that if you grow up gay or LGBT plus, any, an upbringing with that sort of identity issue where you cannot be true to yourself or open all the way through your childhood and for me up to my 20s, you don't solve the problem on the day that you come out. You don't solve the problem of all those years that you've suppressed your emotions, that you've not been able to live your true authentic life. And so I have learned during my recovery, the kind of impact of that. And there's a wonderful book that I read a few months back called The Velvet Rage, and it touches on a number of these issues. And the real trauma that is caused by the daily denials uh, all the way through your upbringing, not to be able to be open and honest, even with the people that you love the most, and to be covering up. Mm-hmm. And I, I, all of that made sense to me. Hugely stressful living that lie, as you say, on a you know, kind of minute by minute basis for years. It must consume an enormous amount of, uh, of mental energy and uh, hiding, hiding it from others and of course trying to hide it from yourself as well yeah yeah i think i hope that the message that i was trying to give in that speech and which is so personally important for me is no good can come from hiding and shame is such a dangerous powerful emotion and it's one that we just don't need to feel it's one that you know if we can be open and honest as much as possible we are going to save ourselves from a lot of heartache and upset. Yes, I mean, I suppose in part you might have, might have also have been trying to protect your parents from the knowledge as well. Was that part of it? I don't know. It's very trying to think back to why I didn't come out earlier is really difficult because I, I look back and I think, what on earth were all those years about of, of not coming out? And I had very supportive, loving parents who would say, you know, we don't care if you're straight or gay or anything else. But I think when you're that age and you look at society, which is heterosexual, where you marry and have kids. And I think one of the things that I can remember is is thinking, well, if I come out, all of that is put at risk, you know, because we live in a, a society that is, normalized heterosexual where you marry a member of the opposite sex and you procreate and so really i think it's difficult for anyone to 
understand who hasn't been there. Yeah, I can, I, I'm sure it is. All those little thoughts that you have about the danger to you living a happy life. Yeah, there's still an enormous sort of social pressure, isn't there, to be as it has or to be the, what people have been in the past. And it, I mean, it is remarkable. I mean, I, you know, I've, I'm old enough to have seen the you know, homosexuality become legal. I mean, you know, this was extremely exciting to to see Parliament voting for a, you know, a humane, rational approach to differences. And, it's one of the great successes, I think. Again, I think it was a Labour Labour government that did that, in fact, wasn't it? Yeah, and also just to remember that there's so many countries across the world where homosexuality is still criminalised, where people are still imprisoned, and some places where people can still be uh, murdered for it. And I think, I mean, certainly in my time in, in Parliament, I've, I've tried to do what I can on that issue. But, I mean, for people here, I just... My, my advice is be who you are. Don't think about the reaction of other people. There's not much use in that. Yeah, so, so you actually were carrying two huge burdens. <laughs> the burden of your sexuality and, and the burden of your drinking. And well, It's a common story. Oh, uh, and, and the right. one thing I've, I've learned since I've talked about it uh, is how common it is and the number of mothers who've, contacted me and, and people who contacted me saying they went through exactly the same experience uh, because in the end uh, and you can probably tell me a bit about this David but you know, a lot of addiction uh, or whatever substance is to do with it can be linked back to trauma it can be linked, linked back to those issues well hello listeners uh, apologies for the interruption to the show but I have a very exciting piece of news to share with you in December I will be releasing my brand new book, The Brain and Mind Made Simple. Now, this is a book which has been developed from lectures I gave for drug science over the last couple of years before COVID. They went down very well. I discovered that people were very interested in their brain and very interested in their mind and also interested in the way that drugs, both legal and illegal, cast light on those and, and affect them. So if you're interested in your brain at all, this book will take you from the very beginnings of, you know, when we're in the back in the primordial days, when the uh, the first animals were developing a nervous system, right through into the current ways in which we can study the brain with imaging, and also give you insights into what goes wrong in the brain. And there are chapters on all the different ways in which processes of consciousness and the content of consciousness can change with disorders such as depression, anxiety, schizophrenia. And also a big section on sleep as well, because that's a fascinating component of brain function, which is not well understood. Now, the book will support drug science in the, in the same way as my previous book, um, Not Uncut, did. And to celebrate the launch of the book, we're hosting a book launch in London. And this will be one of the first real-life events I've done in the past 18 months. And we're very excited to see listeners of the podcast in person at this event. So if you can make your way to London, we'd love to see you there. And of course, uh, you'll be able to buy the book and you'll have a, get a signed copy from me. But obviously, many of the uh, podcast listeners are from overseas and we don't want you to miss out. So we'll also uh, host an online book launch as well. Um, if you follow us on the website, you'll know when that's going to be. And again, if you join our community, you'll be able to get special signed copies and also other access to other drug science events I'm taking part in. So now, back to the show. Yes, I think... The majority of 
people, what well, would certainly, the majority of people who from their 20s onwards become problematic alcohol and other drug users are usually doing it to suppress things. I think that there are some young people who get such a high from alcohol that they sort of get addicted in the same way as you might get addicted to something like cocaine. But I think once once you've gone through university and you've got into the, the world of work and stress, it's the stress relieving effect or the attempt to deaden the pain of and the exhaustion of life that turns people to alcohol. And of course, alcohol is a peculiarly cunning drug because it's um, initially it does it does what you want. And you you know, you dampen down your feelings and you can relax and you can fall asleep. And then four hours later, you're back and you're back in that cycle and you're in that cycle where then you start to think, oh, I've got to have a drink in the morning. And of course, once you start doing that, then you are basically on a very slippery slope. And of course, alcohol is also pretty toxic. And I, I, you've, you've had some pretty bad experiences with, um, with, with alcohol toxicity. I, I, I gathered that twice you almost died from alcohol. Is that right? Yeah. It's not something I've talked in detail about. I'm probably still not quite ready to, to do that. But I know that I will. And there are close friends and family who I might speak to first. But it was, it was to do with that. And I think people are largely unaware of how dangerous alcohol is as a drug. Well, undoubtedly, people have... Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it is truly remarkable how little people understand about the toxicity of alcohol. You know, when I say to people, well, if alcohol was discovered today, it, it would, could, you know, you couldn't sell it because it never passed the food standards. So they think, what? And then you have to go and explain it's, you know, there's this historical precedent of it's been around for so long that people, people assume either assume it's safe or or actively deny it's harmful. It's probably more the latter. People don't want it to be harmful because because they enjoy using it. Yeah. Have you done much work, David, on recovery and that, and that? Well, this is an area that I'm, I'm really, yes, absolutely. We've, we've been working for about oh, 20 years now trying to understand the nature of recovery and what it is that allows people to to stay sober and what the vulnerabilities are that, that lead people to relapse. And we haven't got the answer yet. We're, we've got some insights and, we're, you know, the work is ongoing. I, cause I also think what's interesting is something that I've only learned in my own recovery is the difference between treatment where you might have rehab or medical support and recovery, a sort of community and maybe more therapeutic way of of dealing with some of the underlying issues are I think one of the good things to come out of the Dane Carroll Black review will have to actually as she says it's all all the recommendations are as important as each other and need to be implemented uh, together but the real focus on visible recovery communities that I think we don't have in this country and other countries do it a lot better than us yeah, that is tr still true. And I have to say, I think, to be honest with you, and you'll probably agree, but I'm sure m most of the people in Westminster with you wouldn't. Part of the problem is our political system, is, it's neither party wants to be seen as being tough on the drinker because they see that losing votes. And a rational discourse about alcohol, alcoholism, you know, is often portrayed as the nanny state, you know, and, and people who succumb to alcohol, you know, they're losers, they're failures, you know, they're, it's a failure of will. And we all, you know, you and I know very clearly that that is not, none of those are true, but there's an enormous media kind of 
wall of misinformation and, and, and stigmatization of our of people who do have problems with alcohol, which which I think in this country is in some ways very it's it's more you know perfidious than in most. Would you agree? Absolutely. I I think as a politician to try and give you an insight to I suppose how people communicate with us and how issues are raised. MPs will get a lot of emails about saving the local pub and so there are campaigns. And I absolutely want to save the local pub and value their contribution to communities. But for instance, when I get the, the emails now, I respond by explaining to them the benefits of minimum unit pricing and why that wouldn't hinder the pub industry. Precisely. But would actually deal with a lot of the uh, damage that alcohol is doing at the very bottom end where people are buying the most, the highest strength uh, cheap alcohols that do the most damage. And I don't know, I can't remember what the statistic is, but the damage that is done in the most deprived communities by alcohol, is it, is it up to 18 times than in the more prosperous parts of the country? I think that's the fascinating thing that we don't know, we don't know enough about. We don't know how alcohol can have such damaging consequences in the most deprived areas, even though less alcohol is consumed there. Yes, it's the paradox, isn't it? That, well, but it's not just with alcohol, it's with all aspects of life. You know, the, the higher up you are in the, uh, the APC classification, the better is your health. And, and that's going to be a combination of food and you know, wealth and protecting yourself and getting better health care if things go wrong. But there's probably also psychological aspects to it as well. And, uh, you know, you, it's very understandable why people who've come from areas of huge deprivation, when they see a drug, and, and of course, I mean, alcohol is the common one, but you also see it with people who turn to heroin and other opiates, escaping from what has actually been a particularly miserable teenage or life, you know, up to teenage years, when the first time, you know, someone experiences something like heroin, they move from the very bottom to the very top of the of the mountain. And you can see why they kind of want to keep going back there. And because it's not it's the only way they're gonna ever get there. I keep thinking with what I'm what I've learned through recovery. Because re- recovery is a lot about self-discovery and trying to find those things in your own life that make you happy. And I know that there are lessons for politics uh, in recovery. And I think anyone uh, in recovery would would tell you that because you learn so much about what to appreciate, how to focus your time, what's important to you. And I think in, when we look at modern life uh, and the way in which this country uh, operates today and the inequality and the poverty, the pe- people who are being overworked and underpaid, who have so little security in their lives. All these things are incredible stresses that will only damage health outcomes and only, I think, drive people towards addictive behaviours, like you were saying there. Yes, and I feel rather sad for the current generation of teenagers who not only have got the uncertainty of life, life is I mean, your own family are a very interesting example of how life was relatively certain. You know, you worked on the docks from the 1840s. Your family, you know, they had a job and, you know, you weren't well off, but you had enough to live. And, you you know, you, there was a sort of intellectual security and also a historical narrative. And then 
And then, you know, now, well, it's very hard to know whether people will be working, whether who they'll be working for, and what, you know, whether it'll even be a world to work in with the, some of the issues we're seeing, you know, currently with global warming and that. It's, it's a very much more stressful time to be a young person now than it was, I think, when I was young. And, you know, I think you, obviously you're much younger than me, so you're probably part of that new generation. Well, even I, even, even I think in my 30s, I grew up thinking, well, you would have a salary, a salary job and some protections and hopefully a pension. And now, if you look at people who are being paid or as bogus self-employed or being paid by the hour, zero hour contracts, uh, no pension, no sick pay, what, what chance do they have of that bit of security that will support their mental health and in the end their physical health? Precisely. We are so badly down the wrong the wrong track when it comes to trying to build a happy, healthy society that it isn't unfortunately it isn't about oh, we need to fund this more or we need to put a bit more money here. We actually need to shift the power and the wealth in this country back to ordinary people, working people. I suppose I suppose that's why I'm a socialist. Well, indeed, and I, I have to say I have a, a great deal of sympathy for that perspective as well. And I'd be interested to know why where you think Labour have lost it. I mean, they, I suppose it was they kind of got close with Corbyn and then it just frittered away, didn't it? It's almost too big a question to answer. It, we feel a very long way from government. And I think the Labour Party needs to, needs to work out who it wants to represent, what it's for. And there are different views of that. There's different views about how you win a general election. Do you want to wait, wait for the Tories to prove too incompetent and try and sneak past the post, uh, which I think is a strategy that some have tried and want to try again. For me, I think you've got to paint a different vision for the country. I think you've got to say that on the biggest issues, this, the way things are operating at the moment, the things that we value in life are the wrong things. And we should value more time. We should value uh, our relationships. And I would like to see a politics that changes the vision we have for this country. I think Thatcher came in with her vision of society. She believed in a, the individual that you looked after yourself and your family. Uh, and she create an economy that reflected that. And for me, the Labour Party shouldn't be sat in opposition waiting for the Tories to fail uh, and saying, well, we do things better or we would uh, invest slightly more in, in this service or that service. It should actually be painting a picture of a different vision for the country and for the world that is based on uh, what I think ordinary people want for a happy, fulfilled life. And then we make politics and the economy reflect that. And I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think one of the problems in the UK, of course, is that the the media will portray any Labour Party progressive vision as being somehow kind of to the left of Stalin. <laughs> and, and when the Tories come up with the same policy, which they've repeatedly done, <laughs> Stolen your policies, then be, it's like uh, it's endorsed and cheered. And I don't know how you've, how have the media been to you? Because I find the media in Britain are, are extremely 
difficult. Most of the media aren't interested in the truth. They're not interested in reason and logic. It's a very low level of sort of intellectual debate in most of the media these days, particularly the newspapers. How, how have you found it? Yeah, I mean, I don't consume much news these days. I read the Financial Times and I sometimes watch Channel 4 News and sometimes Newsnight, and that's about it because I can't stomach most of it. I think most of it is absolute nonsense. And I find that it distracts me from what I should be doing, which is having direct communication with my constituents and getting on with that job. And so I'm very aware, and perhaps this, this slightly comes from recovery, that if I'm looking at Twitter, if I'm looking at Facebook, if, or if I'm reading uh, certain press or watching certain TV channels, then I'm allowing someone else to fill my head with what they want to fill it with. And I try as much as I can not to allow that to happen. Yeah, it's good. The same here, actually. Although I tweet, I, I, don't, I don't really read much of what people, other people tweet. But I think whilst you write about the press and the press has its own agenda and it defends the, the vested interests that exist, there are some fantastic journalists and... Oh, yeah, I think it's it's worth mentioning that. And we should encourage a fairer, better press, but we've certainly not got one. Uh, and how we how, how we do, I don't know how you deal with that question. What I've always argued, I'm interested in your take, because you know you're a, being an economist. I think I think we're a very unusual country in that we allow our major newspapers to be owned by people that don't even live in the country. I don't know if there's any country in the world that allows people living abroad to run their media, and where we do. Well, and also the fact that it can be defended as a free, free, free press <laughs> when it is owned by a couple of billionaires, is, uh, it doesn't make any sense in my head. No, and they just perpetuate the same old you know, stigma and, uh, and prejudice. And the worst thing is that they often, and have done throughout history, and I'm thinking of Hillsborough in particular, they, they have attacked the working people decent people, their own readership base uh, throughout throughout their history. And I think, how do they get away with this? Now, in Liverpool, we don't read the Sun newspaper no, for exactly no. that reason. Well, I think they get away with it because they're rather clever at uh, manipulating people's interests and and they play, you know, and they play to people's prejudice. They don't try, you know, it's not about education. I mean, I think I was always reflecting when I was when I was at school in the in the fifties and sixties. There was a, the Daily Mirror was was a newspaper that was was the newspaper of the working man, and it, it was a newspaper that actually did had great columnists. It was a, a newspaper with a vision of trying to educate people about many things in life, not just politics, but education in the media. Don't you know? They, they seem to be words which are you know no longer ever put in the same sentence. I think that's right. Unfortunately, many of the organisations that did come about in order to provide the working class education, uh, organisations like Union, Union Learn and yeah. the Open University have all faced attack uh, funding of cuts. And yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm a visiting professor at the Open University and I just find it so sad how the that tier of funding, it went to help people, in a sense, better themselves through doing courses at weekends and, and, and that's been pulled away from them, those grants. And, and I, th- I kind of feel that as part of I think that's probably political. I sort of suspect that open university students probably don't vote Tory. That would be my cynical explanation as to why that, that, that supporters. 
I think the Tories are very good at funding and structuring their policies to build the kind of society that they want to sustain. And I think Labour has never been very good at that. Um, but I am a passionate believer in let's have a Labour vision, and it should be one that is based on uh, the people that we should represent. Mm. Well, I'll say here, here to that, and I hope you uh, you manage to succeed. But, but but before we finish, can I just I'd like to go back to how the process of how you got help, and when you did you ever go to your GP, or did you always just do it at AA? No, and it's a really good question because one of the things that has amazed me as I've delved into the treatment side of things, visiting hospitals and rehabs and uh, supported housing and AA meetings and the plethora of services that are, at, are out there, is that there is no common pathway. And for me, as I say, it was my brother taking me to my first AA meeting and things kind of came from there. But when you look at the numbers of hospital admissions, for instance, I think it's about one point, it was 1.3 million hospital admissions linked to alcohol in the year before coronavirus. There is usually no support offered to that person. That, that there's never even a conversation that says, do you think you may have a problem with alcohol and would you like some advice and support? And so I, I have to plug Liverpool, the Liverpool Royal uh, on this because they have an alcohol care team, uh, one of the first set up in the country and others are being set up for exactly this reason, to try and make sure that there is a pathway. Because first of all, you've got people who are suffering with alcoholism or drug addiction uh, that have accepted they need help or their families and support groups have, have gotten to a position where they are looking for help. And we're even failing them. Yeah, quite. We haven't got anywhere near an answer for the people who are in active addiction and not able to accept that they need help and support. And so I, I just think we've got so far to go to provide decent support and treatment. And we know, we know that those kind of interventions like you have Liverpool, like was also pioneered in one of the, uh, the London Trust where I work, St Mary's, they pay back. They save the health service multiple times the cost they incur to run them because they reduce the harms of alcohol, which is the most harmful drug in the UK. And yes, they, they should be central to policies of de dealing with people who present when they're with an alcohol-related illness, no question. Very good point. And just to finish, it is something that is worth investing in because it is about saving people's lives. It's about saving their families and their friends from misery and people who are given the support that they need can go on to live the most fantastic fulfilling lives you can ever hope for well dan it's been absolutely lovely to talk to you and i can see that there's no question you are a, a politician that can actually make things change you've changed your own life that might be the hardest thing you had to do but even if it isn't even if changing the way we live today and getting labor into government is even harder i wish you very well in working on that and i can i can see you could easily be um, both health secretary international secretary or even a chancellor if you don't want to become prime minister i don't know why you'd wish any of those things on me <laughs> i'm afraid when you have talent uh, it attracts you 
<laughs> People will want Very you. Kind of you David. Well, lovely to talk to you, Darren. And uh, I hope our paths cross in the real world at some point. Thank you very much. A pleasure to speak to you. Thank you. Well, that's the end of this episode of the Drug Science Podcast. Thank you for listening. But before you go, I would just like to share with you a question from our drug science community members. Recently, we recorded a very special podcast episode in which we invited all of our premium and philanthropic community members to ask me anything they like. Their questions were so good, I thought we should include one or two of them at the end of every podcast episode. So please enjoy this new segment of the show. Apologies for the audio quality as we recorded the session over Zoom. Hopefully they're vaguely relevant to what we've been discussing. And if you want to ask me anything, perhaps we could do an Ask David Anything Part 2. Enjoy. This has all been fantastic. And I have one last question for you, Dave, and then I think we might have to, to wrap up. Um, I'm glad you're going to wrap up because I can smell my supper cooking and I'm getting hungry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so there's one more question. It's from uh, Bjorn, and he's asking about uh, a little bit about the neuropharmacology of uh, Sentia and its history and wants to, you know, how it's different from alcohol. And um, if you could just go into a bit of detail about what Sentia is, I think you'd very appreciate well, it. Sentia. Sentia is a botanical drink that we have made and are selling since Christmas or since January as an alternative to alcohol. It's a prelude to Arcarel, which is a synthetic alternative to alcohol. But that's going to be a few years coming because of all the regulatory hurdles we have to go through. But we, a couple of years ago, we thought, well, maybe we could use botanicals, which are accepted as as foods or as food supplements and put them together in a drink which would mimic the good effects of alcohol uh, without having the negative effects or so many of the negative. And that's what we've done. It's called sentia, which is, I think, Italian for sense or sent sentiment or sensation. And it, people like it. It's like a vermouth. It's, it's got a kind of rich color. It's a lovely deep purple color. It's, you can drink it neat, you can drink it. Most people drink it with a mixture, you know, you can have Coke or tonic or anything you like in it. And uh, it is, well, as I say, people people seem to get an effect from it, which is, they say, it's, you know, it's it's pleasant, it's like alcohol, but you can't get really inebriated and you're not going to get aggressive and you're not going to fall over, et cetera. So it's out there. You can go on the website, sentia.com, I think it's called, and you can order something. But try it out and let me know what you think. And if it's really, if the whole thing, if the whole sentia alcohol thing is very successful, then a significant proportion of the, of the profits are going to come to drug science. So this could be the future of drug science in the long term. <laughs>